Hello, and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This month, the Foundation is looking at the UK government's plans to reach net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, something recommended by the UK's Climate Change Committee in 2019 and subsequently accepted as government policy. Reaching that target will require simultaneous transformation of several vital interconnected infrastructure systems, and it's this system's approach to achieving net zero that we're exploring today. With me to discuss that is Professor Keith Bell, Scottish Power Professor of Smart Grids at the University of Strathclyde. Professor Bell is also a co-director of the UK Energy Research Centre and a member of the Climate Change Committee. Uh, Professor Bell, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much. Nice to be here. Perhaps we, we can start really with the scale of the problem. What are the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the UK and the major infrastructure systems that need to decarbonize? We've already seen a lot of progress, actually. So, you know, a lot of the kind of targets for emissions reduction are made by reference to 1990. And if we look back to then in the UK, we could see that the, the most emitting sectors were industry uh, and, and the electricity sector, generation of electricity with then you know surface transport and use of energy in buildings coming coming behind and and over that period we've seen i mean you know really good reductions in the electricity sector so it's you know no longer the kind of most most significant single emitter single source of emission you know it's reduced by something like 72 percent in that in that period so kind of top of the you know i don't know the league table of shame for emissions would be surface transport which has hardly changed at all in all that in all that time in industry emissions have come down by by a bit more than half in that period so they would be kind of second you know so we're talking you know for surface transport in 2019 something like 110 115 million tons of co2 equivalent industry about 100 uh, the building sector comes third 887 that's come down a bit since since 1990 but clearly there's a long way to go in the electricity sector you know like i say that's that's been the massive improvement that's now at something like 57 megatons of, of co2 equivalent and clearly you know the, the electricity sector has benefited from a lot of investment in changing the sources of uh of, of energy the big challenges around you know surface transport industry how much of that has come about in industry because of you know changes for example to to energy efficiency or the use of resources it's hard to tell it's hard to kind of un, unstitch that from just the changing nature of industry in the uk but there you know to get further while still retaining our industrial base you know for manufacturing construction still requires you know these, these sort of yeah, infrastructure changes so you've painted a picture where some areas have already made significant progress on decarbonizations others have not seen very much progress at all. And we've begun, I guess, to tease out some of the linkages between some of these things, because one of the real challenges is this is not just a set of discrete projects. There is a huge interconnection between some of the different systems. And I wondered if you could tease this out a little bit for us. What are some of the interdependencies in this whole system? So one of the ways in which many people and you know including the ccc for example expect that emissions reduction is going to be achieved is by uh, electrifying a lot of the use of energy 
and making use of the progress that we made and the pro more progress that we still need to make in respect of decarbonizing electricity production. So electricity looks like a really kind of important sort of coupling variable. It's, you know, that applies to multiple sectors, you know, buildings, transport, you know, electric vehicles, for example, industry, uh, manufacturing and construction, they say use of energy, but also the kind of supply of fuels. We still haven't eliminated the use of uh, hydrocarbons. They're still going to be part of our economy for some time to come, although we need to be very careful about how we use them and where they come from. You know, for example, offshore, you know, the energy that they use, you know, for, for the extraction of hydrocarbons, that needs to be decarbonized itself. And, and electricity looks like one of the ways of doing that. But of course, there's a huge variation in how quickly we're going to be getting there in respect of decarbonizing energy in buildings, transport, and so on. So we have to fully understand the demand for energy in these different sectors and the temporal and spatial variation of it. And make sure that if we are going to electrify a lot of it, that the electricity system is capable of meeting it. And one of the key challenges in the electricity sector is the difficulty of storing electrical energy. In, in electricity production to date, we have made use of stored energy, particularly in the form of fossil fuels. You know, we can sort of leave the gas in storage tanks or in pipes. We can leave coal in piles or in, you know, takes time to get it out of the mines. But we have the ability to store that energy and use it when we need it. Of course, it's not a two-way process. But if we get rid of those fossil fuels, now we've got a problem in terms of the timing of electricity production. The electricity system itself is is large, complex, interconnected, non-linear. It's very sensitive to all sorts of disturbances. So it needs to manage, be managed very carefully. We've done that for, for decades, but with this you know, big seasonal demand for electricity, for, for, for heat, for example, we're gonna meet that via electricity. We have to make sure we have the right generation capacity available at the right times. And you know that huge seasonal variation points to a need for some form of seasonal storage, which replaces that kind of storage we had via fossil fuel. So maybe that points to hydrogen. So now we have kind of another interdependency. So we've already had it via the gas system, replacing that you know, use of natural gas via something else, perhaps hydrogen. How do we manufacture it? How do we store it? How do we get it to the places where it's needed? And how viable is hydrogen? to solve this seasonal problem. I mean, it takes quite a lot of energy to make hydrogen, but once you've got it, is it the sort of thing that you can easily store, you can easily transport uh, or produce electricity where you need it? So I, I admit to me not being an expert on exactly the forms of storage, but I understand that it can be stored. Okay, maybe it takes some energy, you'd have to do it in the right way. Maybe it's under high pressure, maybe you're converting it to ammonia, for example. But you know, it, it's, not, it's not impossible yes, you're right to point to some of the kind of round trip inefficiencies, but then you have to look at the alternatives, given the sort of seasonal variability of, of demand. And we have, you know, a distribution network for gas that as it gets replaced, because of the iron mains replacement program that's been going on driven by safety concerns, but we have, so we're told by the gas distribution networks, a large part of that network that is hydrogen ready. So you have got the means to not just store it, but also move it around then it, it does look viable and we're told by companies like Siemens for example that combined cycle gas turbines for electricity generation are on the point of being commercially viable with use of hydrogen instead of natural gas. One of the other things you mentioned was that hydrocarbons 
are still going to be part of our system for some time to come. How do you see the phase out of hydrocarbons, both in terms of how it's done and in terms of some of the timescales? Yeah, it's a really good question. We've got to be very clear about that because it's you know it's a it's a global market for hydrocarbons. There are very strong lobbying interests trying to maintain their use as a feedstock for other sorts of processes and products. They still remain important, but we've really got to be very clear about the emissions associated with with their production and their use. So one of the first things is to say, you know, we need to kind of reduce the emissions associated directly with what's under our control within the UK in terms of oil and gas extraction. It looks like, you know, according to the costs as they stand now, that natural gas could still have a role, say, in the production of of hydrogen, provided we've got carbon capture and storage associated with it. It's not perfect. We can't eliminate all of the emissions, but maybe that helps to kind of provide part of the demand for hydrogen alongside a kind of a growing role for electrolysis using low carbon electricity. Use of methane in combined cycle power stations uh, again, with carbon capture and storage, it, it could be part of the mix, you know, because we have a need for, I think, what I would describe as being um, sort of schedulable and persistent sources of energy so that we can still meet demand for electricity, even during, uh, there's a word that the Germans use for it, actually, dunkelflauter, which I think means these kind of periods of, you know, cold weather where there's a high demand, it's quite dark, not much solar energy, and it's quite still, so we don't get much wind power. Uh, so these could last, you know, a few days, even a couple of weeks. So, you know, our renewables, our sources of variable renewables are, are not available. How else are we going to be confident of meeting demand for electricity, for heating and transport and so on? So things like combined cycle gas gas turbines using low carbon uh, fuels may be still important. Nuclear power stations, well, perhaps. I mean, they're not especially flexible. So the variability of demand still needs to be managed in some other kind of way. Okay, there's some flexibility, but there's a limit to it. And of course, we still have questions about uh, what what the costs of nuclear power stations really are, and are they going to be delivered on time, and and so on. What I have heard, and you can maybe help correct me, is that nuclear power, once you're generating the power, you can then use that if you're not using it into the grid for maybe producing hydrogen or something else. And is that viable technologically? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, electrolyzers are you know, a kind of a sort of technology that's been around for a very long time. Uh, they are being used. The challenges, I think, around electrolysis are about reducing the cost. So definitely, you know, you could have this sort of, yeah, maybe there still is a concept of a base load if you've got this sort of demand that can come in and can use that production. Uh, so I think it's all part of, you know, trying to work out the sort of the cost optimal overall mix, I think. And this, you know, I'm told that there's room for improvement in terms of electrolysis as a process, you know, to do with whatever kind of temperatures you're operating at, what sort of materials you're using. Does it work as efficiently if it's sort of flexing up and down in terms of its production? Perhaps not. But again, that's an area for, uh, for some sort of innovation, I guess. So one of the things this means is that there's a huge number of stakeholders involved in this and actually quite a large number of decision makers as well from, from government, from regulators, different industry sectors, universities, and and indeed the public. How do we put this all together in order to develop a full systems approach? Although we're starting to talk much more about uh, systems thinking or a whole system approach, 
we've already we've already had these sorts of interactions for a long time you know i've already mentioned that the gas system is interrelated to the electricity system because a large part of our electricity production has come from burning gas and we have to be sure that when demand for gas and the supply get kind of tight that we're not going to sort of compromise electricity production you know we've seen kind of example of some of the challenges around that in texas in 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 february where there was uh, you know an ice storm and there were problems with the supply of gas to power stations and then a lot of power stations became unavailable and a lot of the electricity production became unavailable so people were left you know in freezing conditions for days days on end so we've got to get those links right to date they've been expressed i guess through sort of market signals so relying on uh, the spot price for electricity to give signals to encourage extra production and similarly a spot price of gas to encourage extra imports and you know we've had a couple of times in the last 20 years when the gas system has been a bit under pressure but the global market has responded i think even at the level of uh, ships transporting liquefied natural gas being diverted and coming to the uk rather than somewhere else because there was a better price offered for the product we're still relying on those signals, I think, to give the coupling between different different sectors. But are those signals consistent and fair in recognition of emissions, for example? So, you know, are, is, is taxation fair and consistent across different types of energy vector? Are the ways in which we've, to date, incentivized the uh, investment in low carbon electricity production? How are those costs being borne? And the legacy costs, are they being borne in a fair way? And is it you know, relative to the kind of forward-looking costs, where, where thanks large, in large part to those incentives, the costs of electricity production from renewables have come down massively. So looking forward, they'll be you know, very cheap. So yeah, we've got those market signals, but are they always kind of clear and consistent? I suppose another thing to say is that not everything, I suppose, can be done with a carbon price or with a market price. So you know, carbon tax or a carbon price is something that has done quite a lot, but there are other factors that come in, such as you know, the kind of extent of disruption, or uh, how we discount the future and whether every actor has access to all the information so one of the big challenges of course is going to be in decarbonizing energy in buildings and there are so many buildings and, and you know just those of us who are, who are homeowners or, or tenants can see this very uh, visibly how are we going to decarbonize our own heating systems what's really going to influence us in our choices so you know cost the upfront cost of converting a system from a gas boiler to, uh, say, a heat pump, is 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 very high. You know, we're talking maybe as much as you know eight, nine, ten thousand pounds. We need to have the fabric of the building that is kind of appropriate for it, because you don't get the same power rating in terms of heat through a building as you do with a gas boiler. Getting the radiators right, all that kind of thing. So, although the upfront cost is very high, the efficiency of a heat pump means that the operating cost should be very low. So how how can everybody make make sense of that, and how can we, you know, help to meet that that very large upfront cost? So yeah, so I think that kind of un uncovers another sort of set of issues, which is about um, you know making the choices available, understanding them, and what the alternatives might be. So although you know an individual household or in, even a kind of commercial building might install a heat pump, perhaps there's access to a heat network if it's got the right sort of density of heat demand within a spatial area that could be very efficient in making use of provided you've got it a low carbon source of energy you know for for a number of uh, users all on the common system where are the right places to develop such a heat network 
how can that you know that again the upfront cost of that heat network infrastructure be borne can you be confident of recouping your costs over a period of time so again it depends on having the right kind of level of information about where the demand is going to come from and are the individual users potential users going to sign up to it and then points in turn to a role for perhaps local authorities who can enable some of these things and then the existing network owners who can again important facilitators of, of demand electricity and gas networks so as you mentioned already you know there's all these different actors so a key part of it i think is getting the right kind of information available to to all of them everything you've said suggests to me that this is more about organization structures incentives rather than developing new technologies or more innovation i mean to what extent do we have the tools now to do this and to what extent are we still relying on tools that we haven't yet fully developed the ccc has been quite careful in its advice on the net zero emissions target and the sixth carbon budget not to depend on sort of technological silver bullets but to see that these targets can be achieved with technologies that we already use or are close to commercial deployment so some of them are not fully there for example uh, ccs at scale coupled with with electricity production uh, there are there are I mean, a couple of plants i think in in operation in canada but this is not widely used and the total costs of it and the engineering associated are not fully understood but it doesn't seem like it should be impossible to do other things like direct air capture of co2 are more at the developmental stage so we don't want to develop we don't want to depend on things like that although technological development in all sorts of ways you know some of them we've talked about already you know electrolyzers um you know industrial processes for manufacture of cement and steel ripe for technological development but i think you're right that alongside the technological development which of course is going to help to reduce the cost and give us confidence that we're not going to uh, kind of harm our industrial base and our overall economy we have these sort of organizational challenges how different actors interact with each other how markets are set up what the right sort of business models are the right sorts of incentives and sometimes it's a price incentive but as i said already that's not the only thing costs pop up in different ways at different times not always visible to an end user you know buildings is i think a prime example where very often there's a there's a private developer certain costs they can pass on to their customers but the end kind of you know the owner of that building doesn't always get a say in how the building is specified so there's a role for regulation as well i think which then points towards uh, towards government and one of the other things you said right at the beginning was that we're not just doing this as in the uk and obviously there's an international system and various different ways that the international community are going to have to come to agreements but i'm just wondering uh, how the UK fares in comparison with some other countries in terms of getting its systems and structures together? Are there good lessons we can learn from other people or are other people learning good lessons from us? I think to a large extent, we're all in the same boat, actually, of having these sort of, you know, deep structural challenges, challenges about kind of ch changing the whole of society. I mean, yes, technology will help to reduce the cost. It helps to bring different options to the table. But there's also a lot that depends on people's individual choices. So for me, for example, I've got to you know, bite the bullet and, and get rid of my gas boiler or maybe keep it as a kind of part of a hybrid system. But I've, you know, get, get an air, air source heat pump 
installed. I've got to make the time and be, you know, get on with doing it. Uh, and I'm someone who's in the sector and kind of knows the value of it. Uh, so how do we kind of encourage everybody else to do that? I think in many places we have those sorts of societal challenges, you know, changes to our diet, for example, you know, reducing our dependency on, or our, our, not eliminating it, but, you know, eating less meat and, and then changes in the agricultural sector uh, so they can get value, not just from the kind of the, 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 the food product, but also from the, uh, the kind of husbandry of the land, if you like. Uh, encouragement of biodiversity and all that sort of thing. So I think globally we have a lot of those sort of similar challenges. In terms of the energy system, which I kind of I know more about than than land use, for example, um, I think in Denmark, I think it was the 1990s that they did quite a sort of had a systematic approach to how are we going to change our energy system, and it kind of led to a strong drive to incentivize the development of of wind farms and then the utilization of electrical energy for example i think they you know, combine heat and power plant uh, as well to improve the efficiency of the use of use of energy in in buildings uh, so there was a kind of i think a, from what i understand you know quite a clear vision driven by whole system analysis then we look to other countries such as uh, you know we've got a bit further north in scandinavia the natural resources that they have i'm very envious of norway which has all these kind of hydropower which is you know very flexible you know you've got the storage in the in the dams you know, behind the dams in the reservoirs we don't have the same kinds of natural resources here so we can't just copy the same sorts of tricks but we do have fantastic wind resources and we have the opportunity to interconnect our system with the norwegian system and you know, get mutual benefits so they can keep the water in the reservoirs when it's when it's windy and we can export uh, you know surplus wind power to them and then import hydropower from from them when it's when it's when it's not windy i think some of the kind of challenges around hydrogen were uh, yeah again we're all in the same boat the, the european union european commission has set out visions for r d to support a lot of that very good news that, that we are as part of one of the few bits of good news maybe coming from uh, Brexit we still have the opportunity to be part of some of those European research programs and kind of pool our learning around that I think we have a lot of the same challenges around sort of market structures and how we incentivize further decarbonization different models that we can look to in different places so for me as an electricity systems specialist I can look towards uh, I don't know parts of the US or, or Australia see how are you doing it you know what are the kind of pros and cons of different ways of signaling efficient utilization of of, of power in in ireland actually they had you know 10 or 15 years ago they had quite a systematic program of of research to understand what the challenges would be for more utilization of wind power and, and answered a lot of the questions that we're now facing and, and trying trying to grapple with i think overall you know, we're, we're in similar positions really so just to finish off, uh, and thinking back in the UK for a moment, obviously 2050s are quite a long way off, but in order to get there, we need to start doing things now. So what do you think the UK actually needs to do in the next five to 10 years to get itself in a position to get to net zero by 2050? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot to do in the next well, five years. I think the CCC's advice uh, as part of the sixth carbon budget that was published just before Christmas was that pretty much all investments in capital stock should be sort of low carbon compatible 
by sort of about 2030. So as as the capital stock is replaced, you know, different assets of different kind of lifetimes, those replacements by that time should all be, you know, looking towards net zero. So we've got to have the right sort of incentives and market structures and, and regulations in place, really in the next few years, such that all those decisions are made, you know, on that on that basis. And I think particular progress is needed in, in, in buildings. You know, it's this big challenge of decarbonizing heat. Buildings regulations, as I say, because you have this disconnect between who's finally the using the building and who's developing it. We need to make sure that the specification is right and consistent with efficiency, low carbon source of heat. Also actually is well adapted because climate change is a reality. We already see rises in global temperatures and maybe uh, you know you're in the south of England maybe you see it more than me uh, living in Scotland but uh, you know in the summers we have days that are very very hot now so our buildings have to be well adapted for that we've already seen quite extreme weather flooding for example we have to again make sure that our developments are appropriate for that so it's, it's been both trying to reduce uh, the extent to which climate change is happening and be well adapted to that which is already built into the to the system transport we have to facilitate not just electric vehicles and make them easy to use. Fortunately, the vehicles themselves are looking more and more attractive. Uh, you know, depending what kind of mileage you do, they're sort of almost at, at cost parity, although you've got this big upfront cost. You know, the cost of the energy is much reduced and they're much more efficient than combustion engine vehicles. Uh, but have we all got confidence about the charging infrastructure? It's not just about the vehicles, it's also about reducing the need for travel. Have we got access to amenities locally? Uh, we've got alternative ways of getting about. That's a bit of a challenge now coming out of the pandemic about rebuilding confidence in public transport and making sure that public transport is, you know, it works well, you know, it's reliable and all, and all that sort of thing. It itself is, is low carbon. With energy, you know, the land use sector, agriculture, there are big changes coming up, I think, and opportunities as we come out of the common agricultural policy. Uh, the government has, the UK government has outlined some ideas for uh, incentivizing land use and, and encouraging landowners to to do it in different sorts of ways that I mean, the details I think are really important and, and still being worked up so again that's going to set the scene in the next few years for what for what comes afterwards and and although we tend to sort of think that you know electricity sector has been almost like the sort of um, you know poster boy for emissions reduction there's a lot further to go and again, the CCC's advice is that should be completely decarbonized by 2035. So given the lifetime of power stations, you know, gas-fired power stations, 40 years, we've got to start putting the, the pieces in place to encourage that and make sure we can still have a reliable supply of electricity, even if it's decarbonized. So those market design challenges have to be faced and defined in, in the next couple of years you say a vast number of things uh, that need to happen in the next few years that's all we've got time for but uh, professor keith bell thank you very much you're very welcome thank you you've been listening to the podcast from the foundation for science and technology my guest this week was professor keith bell scottish power professor of smart grids at the university of strathclyde the issue of developing a systems approach to net zero is the topic of a webinar being organized by the foundation on the 28th of june Details of that webinar, which is free to attend, can be found on our website at www.foundation.org.uk and then selecting Upcoming Events. 
also on our website are details of all our other events, all our blogs, and all previous editions of this podcast. Until next time, goodbye.